Has there ever been a time in history that compared with all the uncertainty that we are facing in 2022? Actually, yes. The Bible was written by 40 different authors over a period of 1,500 years, and it is the only religious book that's like this. No other book could have one central theme that God loves people and God is desperately seeking a relationship with people. No other book could, could be written by 40 different people in 1,500 different years that, um, that has one theme, that God loves us and created us to have a relationship with us, and he knew that we couldn't do anything about our sin, and he sent his son to die for us. And if you read any story in the Scripture, you're going to find out. Every story from page 1 until the end, you'll discover that the Bible was written during very uncertain times. Take, for example, our text for today. How many of you have heard the term upper room? Anybody heard that term? Now, I've heard of upper room Christian bookstores. I've heard of upper room uh, coffee shops. There's upper room, all kinds of stuff. But what are Christians talking about when we mention the upper room? Specifically, we're referring to the Thursday night before Jesus was crucified. So we call it the Last Supper. You've heard of that. Now, what was happening is that Jesus and his disciples were going to celebrate the Passover meal. Now, every Jew, rich or poor, was expected to make a, 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 a trek to Jerusalem for Passover. And so there were thousands, there may have been as many as a million people who did not live in Jerusalem who descended upon Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. It was that big a deal. It was that special. And we've talked about the Passover many times. So in case you don't know, they were celebrating what happened all the way back when the Israelites were slaves in Egypt. Um, All they had known was 400 years of slavery. They'd prayed and asked God to deliver them 400 years. Their prayers had gone unanswered. They believed one day God was going to send them a deliverer. God sends them a deliverer. He meets a guy at the burning bush. What's this guy's name? Moses. Big Mo stands up and he says to Pharaoh, God says, let my people go. What does Pharaoh say? No, over and over and over. So God begins to send these plagues on uh, Egypt, and every plague had something to do with one of the gods, lowercase g's, that the the Egyptians followed. And God was showing his power over their so-called made-up gods until we get to the last night, and God says, my judgment is coming down. And he says, tonight a death angel, this is what Moses declares to all of the Israelites, tonight a death angel is coming. And he's going to pass over the entire land. And the only people whose firstborn child will not, be, will not die are the people who take an innocent lamb, dip some blood, pour, paint it over the doorpost. The angel will come and they'll say, the people in this house are covered with the blood of the lamb. And so he will pass over. But if he goes by some house and there's no blood on the doorpost, the firstborn would die. God says, you got one hope. And that's if you paint the blood of the lamb over the doorposts. So that night, the death angel comes, he does his thing, and it so messes up Pharaoh because Pharaoh thought he was a god, and if Pharaoh's a god, then his son was a god, and when his son is killed by the one true God, Pharaoh says to the people of, of Israel, please leave. Not, not you, just you may go, it's get out. And, and the Bible tells us that, that God had so uh, disposed the Egyptians towards the Israelites that they went and they said, hey, can we have some stuff to take on our journey? And they're like, here, here's all my treasure, please just get. So they leave Egypt never having a sword, and they leave Egypt rich because God's word is always more than enough to deliver you from whatever you're facing. 
So the Passover is what they celebrated for 1,400 years from the time Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt until Jesus and his disciples, the night before Jesus is going to be crucified, they have been celebrating this. Uh, They had done this before. Now, Jesus, this is his third year of ministry. They'd done it before. And every time before, Jesus had been very, very popular. But this time, Jesus wasn't popular. This time it was radically different. See, rumors were flying around that some folks didn't like Jesus and they were going to kill him. Jesus had actually said, why are you trying to kill me? They said, you're crazy. We're not trying to kill you. And then the next chapter to say, and then they got together to try to figure out how they could kill Jesus. His followers kind of tuned out the death part. And it's important to understand that his followers' thought process is the same thought process you and I have. If God is with you, things get better and better and better. Everything works out in the end. If God's on your side, you get healed, you get wealthier, you get healthier. All kinds of blessings come if God is with you, right? That's what we think. So the moment things don't go our way, we begin to think, what's wrong with us or what's wrong with God? Now, his disciples got really confused because everyone knew they were going to face trouble. Jesus had been there. They almost stoned him with rocks before And so the Bible tells us Jesus announced he's going to Jerusalem. Thomas, doubting Thomas says, see, I think doubting Thomas, in my mind, he's like Eeyore. He sounds like Eeyore. He's always, so he says, we might as well go and die with him. (laughs) Right? Because he's like, we're all going to die. Might as well go and die with him. Right? This is Thomas. It's as if Jesus has a death wish. He says to his disciples, things are really, really bad in Jerusalem. Who wants to go? Thomas says, okay, we'll go, we'll die. Now, every other time they had celebrated the Passover, Jesus had been very specific about where they were going to go, how to make preparations, but not this time. This time he pulls aside two of his followers, and he gives them a really strange instruction. He sends them into the city to find this mysterious man who's carrying a water pot on his head. And they're supposed to follow this guy wherever he goes. And and the house that he goes into, that's where they're going to celebrate the Passover. Why? Because this time Jesus isn't popular. This time Jesus is going to get killed. And so they sneak into Jerusalem under the cover of darkness on this Thursday night. But you remember five days before this, you remember when Jesus, we just, the, the skit guys just talked about it. We call it the triumphal entry. It was Palm Sunday. On Palm Sunday, Jesus gets on a donkey, begins riding into Jerusalem. And anywhere he comes from Jerusalem, he's going to have to go up. Jerusalem's on the top of this mountain, Mount Moriah. And so he gets on a donkey and he starts going and people see him and people believe he's the Messiah. And they have palm branches and they're waving them. They're throwing their cloaks in the road and they're saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They said, this is the Messiah. Five days later, nobody's saying this is the Messiah. Five days later, he's sneaking in with his disciples to an upper room to have the last supper and celebrate the Passover. And that's where we pick up our story in Mark chapter 14, verses 17 and 18. In the evening, Jesus went to that house, the secret house, with the twelve. While they were all eating, Jesus said, I'll tell you the truth. One of you will turn against me. One of you that's eating with me now. And the literal translation is, he says, hey, ding, 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 ding. I have an announcement to make. One of you is going to hand me over. And not one person there raised their hand and said, hand you over to whom? Because everybody knew. Hand him over to the authorities. He says, one of you here is going to hand me over to the authorities. It was a bad time to follow Jesus. In five short days, the the situation had deteriorated from Jesus being, ah, Messiah, to nobody wants to be seen with him. 
So how, how is that for uncertainty? Was Jesus celebrating the Passover during an uncertain time? I'm just curious. How many of you risk your lives to come to church today? You risked your life to be seen with Jesus on that Thursday night before the crucifixion. And then to make matters worse, Jesus says, hey, one of you dudes eating with me, you're going to betray me. You're going to hand me over to the authorities. And see, in that culture, if you were to eat with someone, it was as if you were saying, this is one of my closest allies. This is a friend of mine. So it'd be like having somebody over to your house. Hey, hey, John, you want to come over to my house and let's have dinner and I make steaks and we have this great time. And then at the end, I say, hey, John, by the way, I'm suing you for everything you've got. Have a nice night. That's, that's what it was like for Judas to betray Jesus. Great meal. Now I'm going to sue you. Jesus says, not only is the betrayer one of you, but it's one of you who has chosen to gather with me around this Passover table, this sacred table, and celebrate this amazing thing. See, this was the national Israelite get out of Egypt free party that they're celebrating. And he says, one of you is going to stab me in the back. So he says this, the followers, then the scripture says, the followers were very sad to hear this. Each one began to say to Jesus, I'm not the one, am I? Can you see all these dudes? Is it me? Jesus answers, it's one of the 12. So it's one of you guys. The one who dips his bread into the bowl with me. The son of man will die just as the scriptures say, but how terrible it will be for the person who hands the son of man over to be killed. Check this out. It would be better if he had never been born. See, the followers of Jesus very often argued over who was the greatest. I'm the greatest. I'm the greatest. I'm the greatest. James and John's mom, hey, can my sons sit, sit one on your right and one on your left hand because they're the greatest. Now they're having a debate over who's the worst. Is it me? Am I, am I, the, am I the guy that's going to betray you? When, when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, Jesus said, you have to be born again to enter into the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus is real confused. He says, how can a grown man enter into his mother's womb? And Jesus is like, no, it's a spiritual birth. You've got to be born again. When you're born again, you are adopted into the family of God. And if you've never been born again, according to this last sentence, there will be a day you'll wish you hadn't been born. Because you will stand before Jesus and he'll say, depart from me because I don't know who you are. If you are not born again, You have to be born again to enter the kingdom of God. If you're not, you'll wish you hadn't been born at all. So when when you hear all of that backstory about Jesus is probably going to die and his disciples are probably going to die if they're seen with him, would you agree that it was an uncertain time? That's a yes or no question. The Bible was written during crazy time of uncertainty. And all of you agreed earlier that, that we're at a similar time of uncertainty in our nation, right? Here's a little hint for you. Your whole life is uncertain. But here's what I want you to know. The Bible is the perfect place to run when life is uncertain, when life gets crazy. You pick any story, you study the background, and you'll discover that the Bible was written during uncertain times. So the devil wants you to think this is unique. This is not unique. This is what's been going on since there's been a devil. The Bible's not a a book about rich people having fun. (laughs) There's no happily ever after until the very end, until Revelation chapter 20 and 21, when Jesus makes all things right again. Started out great in the beginning. Adam and Eve sinned, and everybody's sinned since then except Jesus. It's going to be great in the end, but in the meantime, it's not great. 
So let me just give you a few examples of uncertainty to help you understand that you need to run to the Bible during those times. First one is, is Joseph. Way back in Genesis chapter 30, we met a boy named Joseph. We actually did a series on this years ago. He's a dreamer. He's a young man, and his brothers throw him into a pit because he, in his dreams, he's going to rule over them. He's going to rule over mom and dad. They hated him. Now, you've had sibling rivalries, right? Anybody here had issues with a sibling? Have you ever been in a pit hearing your brothers say, do we kill him or do we sell him as a slave? Anyone heard that one? No, you don't have near the issues that Joseph had. His brothers sell him into slavery, and we hear this little phrase over and over for the next 20 chapters in Genesis. But the Lord was with him. He was sold into slavery, but the Lord was with him. Potiphar buys him, but the Lord was with him. Potiphar's wife throws herself at him, but the Lord was with him. She accuses him of rape. He gets thrown in jail, but the Lord was with him, but the Lord was with him. Eventually, after about 14 years, he's elevated to the second highest position in all of Egypt because the Lord was with him. You're going to go through uncertain times. Here's another one, King David. Now, we spent a whole seven weeks talking about King David, actually before he was king, when he fights Goliath and, and God used him in a mighty way. Well, things, did you know that the, the battle against Goliath was the only quick battle that David ever had? All the rest of them took a long time. Now, how many of you have ever had problems with your kids? <laughs> yeah, somebody says, huh, yeah. Has your son ever raised an army and tried to overthrow you? <laughs> Not yet. I'm giving him ideas. Sorry, I didn't mean to do that today. David fled for his life from his own son Absalom because Absalom, David never disciplined his children and it came back to bite him. Absalom tried to kill him, he tried to protect Absalom, didn't work. Absalom eventually, Absalom has long hair. <laughs> Here's a great, a great reason not to have long hair. He was riding his horse through the battle and, and his hair, he got caught up in a tree. Took him right off the horse, he's just hanging there. See what you got to look forward to? You got hair? I don't know, that has nothing to do with anything. You learn that, that even though David messed up a few times in his life, God was with him during very uncertain times. I mentioned Moses. He's another one. When Moses was born, Pharaoh had said, there's too many Hebrew boys in this world. He said, if we're not careful, somebody's going to align with all these Hebrew boys, and they're gonna, when they grow up to be men, they're going to overthrow us. So let's kill all the Hebrew boys. The moment they're born, they're, let's kill them. The girls can live because all the Egyptian men could then just marry the girls and have children, and they'd integrate into Egyptian society. But let's kill all the, the boys that are Hebrews, that are Israelites. And so Moses, has his mom has him, and she looks at him, and she's like, if it's the death squad or if it's the crocodiles in the Nile, I'm going to choose the Nile. So she makes a little boat. She puts him in the boat, sets him out among the reeds, sends his sister Miriam to watch over him. Pharaoh's, um, one of the princesses in Pharaoh's court, hears the baby crying, adopts the baby. Miriam runs and says, should I get one of the Hebrew women to, uh, to nurse this baby? And sure. So Moses' mom is paid by Pharaoh to raise him. Tell me God's not with him when he's supposed to be killed. And eventually God calls him to lead the whole Israelite nation out of Egypt you find out that God was with him. It took a long time, right? Moses was 80 before God called him, hey, I want you to go back to Egypt. And he's like, no. He's like, yes, 
It's the reason you're here. Now, Moses' deliverance foreshadows another baby that needed to be delivered from a similar death squad, only this one was in Bethlehem, and this one was Jesus. Remember Herod the king? When, when the wise men came, they said, we show us where this, this new boy, uh, baby is born who is king of the Jews. Herod was so insecure. His ego was so big. He was like, I'm supposed... Herod had killed several of his own children, several of his own sons, and several of his own wives who he suspected were trying to overthrow him. So it's no big thing for Herod to say, well, let's kill all of the baby boys in Bethlehem under the age of two because he figured out that's the, the age when... So in the midst of that... Joseph and Mary take Jesus of all places to Egypt to escape Herod. And when Herod dies, they move back. They move to Nazareth, and God used him. We discover that throughout his life, God was with Jesus. You read the Bible cover to cover. No matter what the circumstances looked like, God was with his people. Every time, God had the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands, and he always has. Men like Herod and Pharaoh thought they were in charge. <laughs> Satan, the enemy of God, thought he had killed the, the people of God. But when you look back through the rubble of history, God always has the world in his hands. That's not changed at all. The message of the Bible and this church is that Jesus, God, has the whole world in his hands, and he always has. Now, back to Mark chapter 14. In this time of incredible uncertainty, here's what Jesus says. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, thanked God for it, and broke it, and then he gave it to his followers, and he said, take, this is my body. Jesus stops in the middle of the Passover celebration, he says, we're going to change the rules. You've been celebrating the Passover your whole lives, but after tonight, the Passover will have a completely different meaning. This bread is my body. Now, is means represents. Jesus is standing there. He doesn't break off a piece of his body. Here's my forearm. Gnaw on this for a while. No, that's not what he does. He just takes some bread and he says, this represents my body, which is going to be broken for you. And he passes it around and he says, I want you to eat this. And then verse 23, then Jesus took a cup and thanked God for it and gave it to the followers and they all drank from the cup. Then Jesus said, this blood, this is my blood, which is the new agreement that God makes with his people. This blood is poured out for many. The cup represented his blood. He had not been pierced. He'd not been beaten. He'd not been stabbed at this point. So there was no physical blood. He didn't, he didn't do the little, you know, um, oath where he cut it and you shake hands. He didn't drop blood into the cup. It just said, this wine represents my blood, which is going to be poured out for you. So at this point, after they've done all of this, they sing a hymn, they go out to the Mount of Olives. And in verse 27, then Jesus told his followers, you will all stumble in your faith because it is written in the scriptures, I will kill the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. Now, the most important thing he's, he's going to say right here is coming up and Peter totally misses it. But after I rise from the dead, what, what is the most important after I what? After I rise from the dead, this is the big news. I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter totally misses it. And he says, everybody else may stumble, but not me. After I rise from the dead, no, I ain't stumbling. Peter's like, enough with all this negativity. That's not how it works. When God is with you, everything works out. You can't die. You're the son of God. Come on, Jesus, you of all people know how this story goes. And Jesus is like, I do. When I rise from the dead, I'll go ahead of you to Galilee. I don't know if you've, if you've headed into any holiday seasons lately, like Christmas or Easter or whatever, when 
especially the first year after you've lost somebody, you're reminded that life is uncertain, aren't you? We just assume, oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna have this next holiday. We almost never have the same family from year to year, especially as we're getting older. You head into a holiday season, money's tight, relationships are strained, life is short. So here's my question to you as we're heading into this Easter season. Can you trust God when there is absolutely no evidence of his activity in your life? Let me read it again. Can you trust God when there's absolutely no evidence of his activity in your life? You say that, but your answer to that question will determine your response when life is uncertain. In case you hadn't figured it out, the only certainty in life is uncertainty. Now, if we could stop right now and I could have some special guests in our service today and we could do like an Oprah interview, you know, I would bring in the disciples and I would ask them this question. When, when was life most uncertain for you? When was the darkest time of your life? I guess I didn't put that other question in there. I think they would point to this passage and say the darkest moment of our life was when we watched Jesus arrested and crucified and laid in a tomb and, and we thought God's not going to show up. We've wasted our lives. He's not coming. After the upper room, we saw all that stuff. He's not coming. We're done. When was it darkest? <laughs> when, when God didn't do anything about Jesus. He didn't rescue Jesus. Question two, when or where do you think God showed up most powerfully in the life of Jesus? And I think somebody would say, well, was it when, when he healed the blind man? Was it when he made the lame man walk? Was it when he called Lazarus from the tomb after literally four stinking days in the grave? And I think they would have said God was most active during the same days we thought he was least active. When, when we thought he was doing nothing about Jesus Christ, he was doing everything to defeat sin, death, and the grave. We look back now and we realize that's the moment that God was most active. But during those hours, we were convinced that we had wasted our lives. Have you ever felt like that? If you're a Christ follower, that's your story. God seems to do his greatest work when he takes a broken and battered life and he puts it back together again. God takes messed up situations and shows up in ways that we would never choose. And as you grow in your Christian life, you discover God's greatest miracles begin in our biggest messes. Can anyone testify? Now, don't you dare run out and mess up your life on purpose and say, my pastor said, this is how you meet Jesus. Because you might, and I may stand up at your funeral and go, idiot went to meet Jesus because they went and did something stupid out there. But I'll tell you this, personal or national brokenness often causes God to move in a powerful way. So some of you are going to need to own up to your mess. He won't, he won't move when you're in denial. I'm reading a whole book about uh, getting over your past, how to move past your past. And denial is the first step. When we, when we open up and we're real with God and with somebody else, God moves. Some of you are like, well, okay, sure. 
You want me to have faith when life is darkest? I'll have faith, but that doesn't get me a job. That doesn't get me pregnant. It doesn't heal my child. The point of my message today is that knowing that God is in control, no matter what the circumstances look like, that allows you to face uncertainty. And, and too many Christians don't face uncertainty very well. There's never been a more uncertain time than the night that Jesus was arrested. He was crucified, and there were two people who reacted in a very different way that day. What did Judas do? Judas went out and he hanged himself. Peter was just as guilty as Judas, but Peter just kept plodding along until Sunday morning. What happened on Sunday morning? Jesus shows up, and it changed his life. One waited on God to work. The other took matters into his own hands. And which of those two do we consider a success, Judas or Peter? Peter. So here's the thing. This is what I want you to get out of today as we head into the Easter season. Life is uncertain. God is not. So in order to kind of help you uh, cement this into your life, we're going to do a call and response. You guys are going to say life is uncertain. You guys are going to say God is not. All right? Life is uncertain. God is not. Ready? They're better. Okay, let's try again. Now let's let's switch it just so you get this, right? Your life is uncertain, God is not. Do you really believe that? If you believe it, it'll change the way you face uncertain times. Now, some of you have been burned by the church, and so it may be difficult to believe that that God can work amongst his people, but Every page of the Bible shows us that God has the whole world in his hands. And, and this is one of my favorite passages. It's Romans 8, 28, and 29. It says this. We know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So I shared this at, at John Brown's memorial. This verse doesn't say that everything that happens in your life is going to be good. That's not the promise of Scripture. It doesn't say that everything that happens in your life, God causes Because there's an enemy of God in this world. He's called the God of this age, lowercase g. He's the enemy of God. He wants to destroy you. He wants to destroy your family. He wants to destroy future generations. So this verse doesn't say everything that happens is good. It doesn't say that everything that happens to you is caused by God. What it says is our God is so big, so strong, and so mighty that he can take anything, good or bad, and he can, uh, it says, for the good of those who love God who are called according to his purpose. For, now here, what is God's purpose? It's in the next verse. For God knew his people in advance and he chose them to become like his son so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers. The good that God can cause to happen in your life when, when bad things happen is he can make you look more like Jesus. You're going to take, you're not going to take your wealth, you're not going to take all of your, your um, stuff to heaven. What you're going to take is, is who you are, your character. And God wants your character to look like his son when you get to heaven. So he's going to take you through some bad times in this world. And if you'll trust him, he's going to make you look more like Jesus. See, we have the advantage over people living in the Old Testament. They hadn't seen the cross. We can look back and see the cross. We can see that, that Jesus took the worst thing in the history of the world and he made it the greatest thing. It's why we call it Good Friday. Why is it good? Because God substituted his son for me, for you. So I don't have to spend eternity in hell. I can spend eternity in heaven. If God was in control then on on Good Friday until Sunday morning, there's no reason to think he's not in control today. God's not lost any of his power. We just lost our faith. Let's pray together.
Father, would you prepare us for Resurrection Sunday? God, would you, um, would you move in a way this week where people are asking spiritual questions and we recognize that you're bringing those people across our path so that we can point them to you? Lord, would you show us who we can invite to Easter Sunday so that they can hear the message of Jesus Christ? Would you remind us that if you were in control on Good Friday, you're still in control today? And would you teach us what it means to be people of faith? We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.